Being a chef means keeping your cool in the kitchen. And with Resi Priority Notify and Global Dining Access through my Amex Platinum card, right this way, it's nice to try someone else's food for a change. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Superchargers, headlights, and more with over 122 million parts, eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Stay on your A-game with all the parts you need at the prices you want. It's easy to bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. It's Freddie Prinze Jr. and Jeff Dye back in the ring. Wrestling with Freddie makes its triumphant return for an electrifying fourth season. Hey, Jeff, are you ready to rumble our way into an all-new season of Wrestling with Freddie? You better believe I have. I've been practicing my body slams, and I'm jacked. All right, don't go injuring yourself now. We'll be highlighting the best stories and matches of the week in wrestling from AEW, WWE, and have one-on-one talks with the best talents in the world of pro wrestling. Listen to Wrestling with Freddie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Volume. In the NBA, the game can change in an instant. But no matter how the action unfolds, you know DraftKings Sportsbook has your back. This week, new customers can score 150 instantly in bonus bets just for betting 5 bucks on basketball. Win or lose, you get an instant dub. We've got a huge game this week in Philadelphia. The Celtics and the Sixers going at it for the right to be called the best team in the Eastern Conference. That is a game that is going to have a lot of good bets available for it. So download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now and use the code MANIX. New customers can get $150 instantly in bonus bets for betting just $5 on basketball. Only on DraftKings Sportsbook with code MANIX. The crown is yours. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. In New York, call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY-467-369. In West Virginia, visit 1-800-GAMBLER.net Please play responsibly. In Connecticut, help is available for problem gambling. Call 888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org. On behalf of Boot Hill Casino Resort, Kansas, must be 21 or older in most eligible states, but age varies by jurisdiction. See DraftKings.com sportsbook for details and state-specific responsible gambling resources. Eligibility and deposit restrictions apply. Bonus bets expire 168 hours after issuance. Terms at sportsbook.draftkings.com slash basketball terms. This is Boxing with Chris Mannix. Oh, somebody punch him in the face. Anthony Joshua is a composed and ferocious finisher. Watch this. Andy Ruiz is the heavyweight champion. Hosted by SI's Chris Mannix. That was my moment. Now with interviews, analysis, and everything going on in the world of boxing. When you have talent, you are given another chance. Here's Chris Mannix. Ah, that is the sound of my ship coming in. I have successfully made it back from Android Island. A long and tortured journey after... Uh, watching Demetrius Andrade just crash and burn on Saturday in Las Vegas, knocked out in the sixth round of his uh, fight against David Benavidez. I was overflowing with confidence going into that fight. I was a Demetrius Andrade truther, undefeated, 19 knockouts, avoided for his entire career. I thought he'd be able to outbox David Benavidez. First couple of rounds, 
Oh, I felt good about my prediction. Then the third round comes, and even though I thought Andre had won that third round, uh, he took a shot late in that third round that seemed to change the complexion of the fight. Goes down in the fourth, never really recovers. You could see his footwork was gone, his head was out of it, and the freight train that is David Benavidez just rolled right over him. So kudos to David Benavidez. Uh, he is the real deal. Like, you know, we, we'll get the fighter of the year in the weeks and, and days to come, but he's put a pretty good campaign together. Beats Caleb Plant by one-sided destruction and then absolutely mows down Demetrius Andrade. Yeah, so we'll get into what this means for both those guys. But I wanted everybody out there to know that I have returned successfully from Android Island. Uh, a little poorer, that's for sure, and uh, certainly a little worse for wear because of what happened uh, this past Saturday night. Got a great show, though, for you. Uh, Corey Erdman, writer, BoxingScene.com, broadcaster, zone, and other places. He's going to join me, talk about the Android Benavides fight. Also, Taylor, Katie Taylor, Chantel Cameron. Great show over the UK, or Ireland, I should say, not the UK. Ireland this past weekend. Got to correct myself on that one. Uh, Corey and I will talk about that a little bit later. Ryan Garcia. I sat down with Ryan in Dallas, Texas uh, very recently. Uh, Ryan and I talked about his, his decision to move to Texas and to kind of restart his career down there. So we get into all that. He's working with Derek James and how he looks at this as kind of a new beginning on what is still a very young career. But first... As promised, Corey Erdman is here. He will be in Houston, Texas this weekend. Not for the Garcia fight, but he'll be working the show on Friday. Corey always finds his way into these very interesting shows. Corey, let's just remind me. That, that is the Red Owl Boxing Show, which is taking place on Friday, the day before the Ryan Garcia fight, correct? You are correct, yeah. So it's a new uh, kind of prospect-ish series that, that's being launched on DAZN. Uh, Red Owl Boxing has, has agreed to about nine shows so far with uh, with DAZN. We've done a couple Red Owl cards from Canada featuring some Canadian prospects, but this one um, is really leveled up in terms of the talent that's on it. So the main event will have Omar Salcido and Luis Correa. Uh, Jaleel Hackett, the Mayweather prospect, will be on that card as well, and, uh, and a bunch of other interesting names and you know in a post showbox world and in a world now where there's more boxing broadcast than ever uh we need series like this to keep fighters of this caliber uh, both prospects and kind of fringe contenders active and um i'm liking the way that this one's shaping up so i'm i'm excited to do it nobody loves a good prospect series or fringe contender series like Corey Erdman. No I, I consider myself something of a boxing nerd when we have these zone production meetings I tend to nerd out a little bit, but I, I pale in comparison to the nerd knowledge of Corey Erdman. When he walks in there and is able to quickly identify, like, use Becky prospects and, you know, the Canadian talent pipeline, I I, I bow to your uh, knowledge of the inner workings of low-level boxing. I will I'll give you that. I, I mean, listen, I mean, you understand uh, the level of commitment to uh, to fighters. I mean, you you were a platinum member of the the Andrade Club, you know, which uh, Andrade <laughs> Island sounds a lot like uh, being at the White Lotus right now. Uh, maybe worse. So let, let's talk about what we saw uh, this past weekend with Andrade and Benavidez. Andrade, undefeated middleweight champion, second fight at super middleweight. At the very least, Corey, I thought this was going to be competitive because Andrade was always a big middleweight and I thought he still had the skills, even at 34 years old, to give David Benavidez a lot of problems. And look, the first couple of rounds he did. Like his footwork was sharp. Uh, he moved really well. Uh, he stayed low, didn't allow Benavidez to kind of close the gap on him. But 
Like I said, end of that third round, he took a shot. And then the fourth round, he just started to get it mowed down. Uh, did this go the way you expected it to go? What did you think of the way the fight played out? Um, I couldn't have predicted that it would go like this. I mean, this kind of destruction was certainly surprising to me. Uh, I wasn't picking Andrade coming into this fight, but like you, I thought that Andrade would be mobile enough to cause problems uh, at least into the later rounds and you know maybe then get stopped. But I, I didn't see it going quite this way. And, and I wrote about Benavidez on, on Boxing Scene for my Monday column. And for me, I think this was the, the full... the me kind of seeing the full picture of David Benavidez. The full thought, Benavidez? Did he yeah, show you the full he Benavidez showed me the right full there? Benavidez. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. He revealed himself to me uh, on Saturday night, and, and I liked what I saw, Chris Mannix. Uh, this was a fighter who clearly is more than just an imposing physical presence uh, because there were adjustments that he had to make to Andre. This wasn't just someone that was mowing down someone who was moving up in weight. That was certainly a factor. You know, Andre looked like you know, he was on the, the hypertrophy pro program coming into uh, this fight. It certainly bulked up maybe more than he was comfortable with. But the boxing skills were still there. The the the, the hand speed was still there. The, um, the strategy certainly seemed to have a pretty good one. But Benavidez wasn't just physically imposing. He, it wasn't just the hand speed. It wasn't just the power. It was those adjustments that he was able to make. And he made them quickly. And he turned it into a route, as you said, basically from the end of the third round on. Um, so this was an impressive performance for me and really, you know, put into full picture just how scary of a proposition David Benavidez was. You know, as I was watching it and then writing about it afterwards, I was coming back to um, there was a moment during In a Way Maloney when Andre Ward and Tim Bradley were on commentary and they kind of broke from the convention of, of trying to be in a commentator, trying to engage in conversation. And they slipped into that role of just being fighters who were watching someone and being mesmerized from them. And Andre Ward just kept repeating the line, he's a lot to deal with. It's a lot to deal with. And as I was watching that Benavidez performance, that's what was playing in my mind. That David Benavidez is a lot to deal with for anyone at 168 and wherever he winds up on the scale. Look, Benavidez is a notorious slow starter, and we saw some of that in this fight. First round, Andrade outpunched Benavidez 8-7. to seven. Second round, Andrade 12-8. to eight. Then you get to the third round, and like I said, even though I thought Andrade won that round, you got to like the final minute, and Benavidez landed something big. I don't know if it was a body shot or a head shot, but he landed something that put Andrade on his back foot and had him moving over those final 35-40 seconds. Then you get to the fourth round, and it's Benavidez 18 Andre 12. Fifth round, David Benavidez landed 40 punches on Demetrius Andre. 38 of those punches were power shots, including the one that uh, knocked him down. Andre only landed 10 punches in that, in that round. Then the six comes around, same thing. 38 punches landed to 14. 36 of those punches, according to CopyBox, were power shots. So he really is like, you know, he's a young man, but he's kind of like an old car. Like he just kind of gets going slowly and then just is almost impossible to stop when he starts uh, uh, getting some momentum. And, uh, you know, I, I don't know who can compete with that. Now, that, that brings the natural, you know, segue up to Canelo Alvarez. And I guess we start here. Uh, if Benavidez fought Canelo in May, and we can get into later, will he fight Canelo in May? But if Benavidez fought Canelo in May, who would you make the favorite right now? I know oftentimes we become kind of prisoners of the moment where 
We just saw something awesome, and we forget how awesome something else is. And Canelo, even though he's not the guy we saw back in 2018 going toe-to-toe with Gennady Golovkin, beating up later on Callum Smith and Billy Joe Saunders and all those guys, he made his way to the top of 168. He's still a dangerous guy. He still has some of the best hand speed uh, in boxing. He still has some of the best power in, in the super middleweight division. But if Benavidez and Canelo fought this May, who would you make the favorite in that fight? I still make Canelo the favorite, and, and and I was interested in this, and so I looked to see if anyone was actually offering odds on this yet, and I did find one sports book that was, and Canelo was a little under a two to one favorite, which I think is fair, and I think that that is that's a credit to David Benavidez, and I would have thought and probably campaigned for that line to be a little bit wider before I saw what I saw out of Benavidez against Andrade. I I will sort of flip this another way, though. And and I will say that although I think Canelo is the rightful favorite, both because Canelo's been basically the premier fighter in boxing for the last decade and until, you know, kind of fully proven otherwise deserves that. But also from a odds maker perspective, I understand, you know, the economics of betting and why they would make it that way. However, when I'm coming into this fight now, my mind has kind of shifted into the question of whether Canelo can beat Benavidez and not the other way around. So it, it, I, I'm kind of, I'm not meaning to dodge the, the question here, but I, I'm kind of, in my mind, I now actually do question whether Canelo is big enough, fresh enough to deal with what I've seen out of Benavidez. And that's the main question in my mind and not, hey, like, does Benavidez have what it takes to beat Canelo? I, I want to see how does Canelo deal with this guy? Because this is a proposition he hasn't seen yet. And and Benavidez, listen, he doesn't do the things that Bivol did to beat Canelo, but I'm not entirely certain that he can't do some of the things that Bivol did to beat Canelo, plus some other stuff that is really dangerous to Canelo. So this is this has become even more fascinating to me. Well, I think the two to one odds in favor of Canelo are about right. And you say that Canelo's not seen the kind of things that Benavidez has done. I would argue back that Benavidez hasn't seen anything close to what Canelo does. Of like, course. Yeah. The one common thread, like the common thread, at least of 2023 for Benavidez opponents, have been neither of them have any power, right? Like, you know, Caleb Plant, due respect to some of the knockouts he's had, not a power puncher. Demetrius Andrade, 19 knockouts, whatever, not a power puncher. Like, not pillow-fisted by any stretch, but these aren't knockout punchers. Canelo Alvarez is a knockout puncher. Canelo Alvarez can hurt you with one shot, can knock you down, and knock you out with one shot. Now, he is not the five-six punch combination guy he once was. We saw that in the Jamel Charlo fight. The Canelo from 2018 would have walked right through Jamel Charlo, would have landed one big shot and followed up with like seven more. That guy doesn't really exist anymore. At least we haven't seen him in a couple of years. But you know, Benavidez comes in just full speed. Like, he, he is, when he comes at you, there's there's no slowing down. Like, he is coming at you and throwing a whole bunch of punches. Uh, that's a dangerous thing to do with a puncher the kind like Canelo Alvarez. So, I, I would argue in favor of Canelo that you just, you're not going to do some of the things that have made you successful against a fighter like Canelo. You're not going to throw as many punches as you do per round against Canelo. We see that time and again. Like, you know, the output of of opponents against Canelo Alvarez is so much different than what it is against other opponents because you're worried about what's coming back. Like, you know that if you're going to stand in the pocket and trade, 
something big is probably coming back at you. The only guy that's willing to do that has been Dimitri Bivol. One thing Bivol has shown throughout most of his career is that he has a light heavyweight chin. Like, he is, he has legit chin. He has been hit by Joe Smith. He has been hit by Canelo Alvarez. He can stand up to that type of power. Now, I think Benavides has a good chin. Does he have a granite chin? Can he take a big counter shot? That remains to be seen. That's why I think that fight is so interesting. Now, the question becomes, will Canelo take it? And, you know, in kind of poking around people I know around Team Canelo, I don't get the sense that this is a front burner, you know, opponent for them. Like, I still, I think there still is interest in a Terrence Crawford to fight Canelo in, in May, because that is a probably the most marketable fight that can be made for Canelo Alvarez right now. There might be somebody else. I mean, Edgar Berlanga is still out there with an undefeated record. Jaime Munguia is still out there with an undefeated record. He could go a multitude of, of different places for his next fight. And that's kind of the sense I get. Now, could things change in the weeks ahead? Yeah, sure. Like, you know, Canelo, he might decide to wake up mid-December. You know what? Maybe I will fight this guy. Maybe it is time to kind of prove once again to people that I am still at the top of my game. But I don't get the sense, Corey, that that this fight's imminent by any stretch. I think there are other options Canelo is looking at, and David Benavidez is not high on that list. Yeah, and that does seem to be the case. And you know, you're you know, you've been sniffing around a lot more than I have uh, on this front to find out, you know, what Canelo's thinking right now. But the, the way that Canelo has talked about Benavidez, or really has kind of avoided that scenario and those questions, has always suggested to me that it's not something that he's running towards. That's not to say that I think that Canelo is afraid of Den- David Benavidez or anything like that. But no, because Corey you know, Canelo Canelo is in. And I've said this on this podcast before. Canelo is in his Mayweather years, right? Yes. Like he is now in his money making, maximize exposure, cash, all those things years. You know, three years ago, and look, I said this to David Benavidez. Like David doesn't think Canelo's ducking him either. David knows full well that a few years ago, if David still had a 168 pound belt, Canelo would have fought him. Like mm-hmm. he was determined to become the super middleweight champion of the world, the undisputed king at 168. Now it's like, well, what's the the smartest fight out there for me to take? He's not gonna duck David Benavidez forever, but if uh, you know, I, I, he's not going to feel like he's obligated to fight him. And look, I. I I understand that. I, I don't love it because the best fight out there in May is Canelo against Benavidez. But if I'm Canelo and I'm in my early to mid-30s and I've accomplished pretty much everything, I'm a first ballot Hall of Famer, I'm a three-division world champion, a four-division world champion. Sorry, moved to 175 when he beat uh, uh, Sergey Kovalev. Um, I, he's proven everything that he wants to prove. So if he wants to go out there and fight Terrence Crawford in a fight that would do more pay-per-view buys than a... Canelo Benavidez fight. I'm sorry, it's true. Benavidez, he's well known to people like you and me and others in boxing. Terrence Crawford is known by more. And Terrence Crawford coming off that win over Errol Spence is at his peak marketability. So if he wants to go out there and fight Terrence Crawford, yeah, I can't really begrudge him for that. Yeah, and even though there is that weight disparity, I can see, you know, Canelo clinging on to that the pursuit of of pound for pound greatness again, right? You know, Canelo for so long was universally regarded as number one in the world and now uh, there are a lot of people who think that that man is Terrence Crawford either him or in a way and again even though there would be you know they would be playing some games with the weight a little bit in his mind beating Crawford may kind of signify superiority over the entire sport again and that is far more tantalizing to him than just beating you know the new young upstart to pick up another 168 pound title and 
you know, you're right. Canelo has, you know, it's tough because we want to kind of treat every active fighter the same and make the same demands of them. But Canelo, you just pointed out all of his accolades. Like he is in the equivalent of, you know, what a musician would be in when they're, they're kind of a legacy act. It doesn't matter what album they release at this point. They're going to sell out stadiums and they're going to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And that is the position that Canelo is in. And what do those acts do? They do just what seems most fun to them. What venues seem fun? Do they want a Vegas residency or do they want to play, you know, some monstrous stadium? That Those are literally the choices that Canelo has right now as an active fighter. And so... I think that Crawford seems more appealing to him than Benavidez does right now. And I'll tell you, I believe that Canelo will fight David Benavidez within the next 18 months. I believe he will. I don't think he's going to duck Benavidez forever, but I think going to Crawford or somebody like that makes more sense to him for May. September, who knows? I mean, look, the Saudis could wake up and write a check and have Dmitry Bivol fight against Archer Betterbiev in the spring, and all of a sudden, Bivol could be walking around as the undisputed champion at 175. That could tempt Canelo to get into the ring again with Bivol uh, before the end of the year. But I do think that we get Benavidez-Canelo at some point. I just don't think we're going to get it in May of next year. Maybe I'm wrong. Hopefully I'm wrong. But that's the sense I'm getting right now. As far as Benavidez go, he goes, he said something interesting in the aftermath of uh, this past fight. He said that if Canelo can't happen he'd be willing to go up and wait to fight Dimitri Bivol himself. And I love that attitude. I absolutely, positively love that fight. Because look, David Benavidez is basically a 175, squeezing his way down to 168 anyway. He's going to be bigger than Dimitri Bivol if he steps in the ring with him at 175. He's got the style. He's got the power. That is a can't-miss type of fight. I would love to see David Benavidez fight Dimitri Bivol in the spring if Canelo says, you know what? I'm not going to do this right now. Because if Benavidez beats Bevel, I mean, all of a sudden, that's the fight that Canelo almost has to take. Because then Benavidez would have a light heavyweight strap. He will have beaten the guy that beat Canelo. That, that's the one thing I think that David Benavidez can do to make sure Canelo fights him in his next fight. Yeah, then he's basically cornered Canelo, provided that Canelo is still you know, looking for achievement as a professional and not just looking to put on events. Yeah, I mean... That would be a fantastic fight. And what a position to get Bivol in, especially if Bivol can't get that better BF fight beforehand. If you know, Bivol's been inactive, he's had you know, serious turmoil outside of the ring as well. Like, why not go and give that a shot? And again, you know, the, the boxing public these days is a lot more forgiving of these types of like dare to be great scenarios. We use that term a lot, but Benavidez going up to 175, even if he doesn't beat Bivol. Just come back. You know, you won't lose anything by taking that risk. So if that fight is available and he wants it, uh, I love the fight and I am fully in support. I love that fight. And if Bevel uh, really wants a challenge and wants to make some money, that's the fight he takes to. You know, obviously, like everybody hope that uh, if Archer Betterbeef gets through Callum Smith in January, which is a tough fight, like that's a that's not a gimme for for Betterbeef. But if he gets through that and the Saudis want to write a check, by all means, let's see that fight. That's the best fight you can make. At light heavyweight, but if that's not available, then a Benavidez Bevo fight in Vegas is awesome. Like that is a phenomenal fight, a pay per view fight to make sometime in you know April or May uh, in Las Vegas, or maybe even Texas, maybe somewhere, maybe New York. Who knows? Wherever it is, it's it's a tremendous fight. Um, on the undercard of this show, you had Jamal Charlo making his return, two and a half years out of the ring, the former middleweight champion. Didn't go so well for him on Friday when he missed weight by three and a half pounds. A catch weight, I should point out. He was originally supposed to make 163, blew that, 
finished up, I think, at 166.6 or something like that. Um, eventually, the fight went on with Jose Benavidez, who is really 140, 147 pounder, was coming way up in weight for this particular fight. All that being said, but Jamal looked fine. You know, he hadn't been in the ring for a long time. He obviously had some weight issues for this training camp. Said he trained three weeks for this fight. I thought he looked fine. Like his, his speed looked pretty good. His power looked decent. Didn't really have any kind of problem with Benavidez. What was your assessment of uh, Jamal Charlo's performance in the co-main event? Yeah, I, I think that my assessment is basically what Jamal's assessment was of his own performance, which is that, listen, he, he got it done and he's proud of himself for getting it done. And, you know, in listening to Charlo speak uh, to the media in the buildup to this fight, I, I think you got a greater sense of just kind of what kind of struggles Jamal was going through. And he, and he didn't specify exactly what he was going through. But I think, you know, having seen Jamal in public over the last several years and, you know, how erratic his behavior was coming, I think we can come to our own conclusions as to what he was dealing with. But he was dealing with a lot. And, you know, I, I'm willing to give someone grace for that. You know, like, I don't care that, that he missed weight. You know, obviously, you know, he had a truncated training camp and he was, you know, probably starting from a, a much higher point on the scale, given what he was dealing with before. But inside the ring, he looked like a supremely talented fighter who hadn't fought for a while. But all of that seemed to still be there. You know, when you look at the, the underlying statistics of that fight, landing 40% of his shots overall and nearly 50% of his power shots, that tells me that the punch selection is still there, that accuracy is still there, and that Jamal, after you know one or two more serious training camps and then a step up in opposition, still has it in him, most likely, to get back to, to somewhat close to where he was before. So I think that that fight provided exactly what Jamal needed. Um, it got him comfortable with being you know out there and fighting again, given what he was dealing with behind the scenes. Uh, I think it's just exactly what he needed. He got it, and and he showed me um, the right amount <laughs> that I needed to see to believe that Jamal could still be a Yeah, I've been very critical of Jamal professionally as a middleweight champion. I, I didn't like that he wasn't seeking out the biggest fights, most notably Demetrius Andrew, but he also didn't make fights with guys like Jaime Munguia, didn't make fights with Gennady Golovkin. Um I took issue with that over the years. Personally, I'm very impressed with Jamal Charlo, really how he conducted himself during the buildup to this fight, and really how open he was about his mental health challenges and the things he had been going through in his life. Look, his brother didn't come to the show. Like, that was surprising. Jamal, you know, just weeks earlier had come to, you know, Jamel's fight against Canelo Alvarez. Jamal, uh, Jamel wasn't there uh, for this fight. And you saw at the end of that press conference after the fight, Jamal basically made a plea to the media to you know say hello to my brother for me, tell him I love him. So I, I give Jamal a lot of credit for being so open about uh, what he's gone through over the years. Now the question is, can he get back to the proverbial mountaintop? Uh, I, I think 168 is going to be a challenge for him because even though he won that fight against Jose Benavidez clean, he was backing up a lot. And again, Benavidez is not a middleweight or a super middleweight. He's a welterweight who you know is beefing up just for the opportunity to fight someone like Jamal Charlo. Uh, what happens when Jamal's in the ring with Caleb Plant, which is a guy that you know, clearly there'll be some uh, some clamors for, are some clamors for, for him to fight? What happens if he fights a guy like David Benavidez? I mean, if Jamal had fought Benavidez on this night, it would not have gone any better for him than it did for Demetrius Andrew. In fact, it probably would have gone worse because 
you know, Andrade at least was able to stick and move for a couple of rounds. I don't think Jamal has that really in him. Uh, I think the key for Jamal is going to be staying active. And that may mean taking another low-level fight. Like, let's say he can fight again in February. And granted, at this point, as we record this, I have absolutely no idea where these PBC fights are going to wind up. But if he can fight again in February, he should do it. Like, even if it's for relatively low money, he should do it. Because he's got to try to get some of that ring rust off, the momentum back, get his confidence back to a sky-high level. I think he's at least two fights away from being able to challenge even someone like Caleb Plant. I would love a Caleb Plant fight. That is a, a a big event because we all know the bad blood between those two guys. Caleb Plant slapped Jamal you know, just a, a couple of months ago. Um, I, I don't think he's there yet. And look, I'd still like to see him in against Andre down the line. I don't think he's there yet. I think he needs... No, not a Benavidez type, but he's a legitimate 168 who's not a huge threat to kind of get himself back to that world championship level. Maybe it means fighting on another undercard. Maybe it means taking a reduced purse. But to get back to the kind of paydays he's looking for and the events he's looking to be in, I think he needs to stay active. I think you need to see him kind of going back to his roots, you know, before he was a world champion, before he was... uh, you know, one of the best guys at 54 and then 60. I think he needs to kind of rebuild that way uh, in order to him, for him to get back on top. Yeah, I, I think so too. And, you know, I hope that that he sees that as well because you're right. I don't think that, you know, a 10-month layoff where he's hoping for a bigger fight and he thinks that, you know, the the improvements, the, the getting back to where he was before will just happen in camp. I think it's going to happen in live action. And I think for him too, having continual structure and fights to look forward to, that's probably good for him as as a person and as an athlete as well. So I think on both fronts, it's it's a good idea for Jamal to remain as active as possible. And I think that if he does, I think that we'll see a little bit more aggression coming back. You know, you mentioned that he was backing up against David Benavidez, or excuse me, against uh, Jose Benavidez. I think that's to be expected for a fighter that is really rusty. I think when when you've been out of action for a long time, that's kind of where you find comfort is backing up and seeing what's coming at you and then reacting to that. But as your confidence builds, your fitness increases, you start to take some more chances. You start to get a little bit more aggressive. And and so I think that we'll see that return uh, from Jamal, provided that he can be active and, and he can continue to shake that rust off and you know, in, and it's also just good for him in terms of his public standing as well to to be busy, you know, get a few more impressive performances back under his belt, and you know, suddenly his name value starts to rise again. I, I think that it's it's good on every front for for him to to take the. He's still got a name. Suggesting. He's still got an undefeated record. He still, for now, has 160 pound title. There there is a a pathway, a clear pathway for Jamal Charlo to get back into bigger fights. I just think he needs to ease into it. And I think he needs to find a way to be active. And that means communicating with his handlers, look, I don't need the big purse. I don't need the headlining slot. Like, just get me back out there. Keep me on cards to get me back to a level where I can compete with the guys that people ultimately want to see him. Last thought on that card. Uh, <laughs> the Superhell Matias fight against Urkashev. Like... <laughs> Just you knew that was going to be just a yeah. It, it had the potential to be the fight of the night, and it, it was close to it. It was certainly the the best fight of the undercard. I thought um, it, <laughs> first round, you know, Ergashev is just coming out, just throwing bombs. Like 
you know, looks like a bodybuilder. You're sitting there going, no, there's no way Matias could hold up on this. But Matias, for like a round and a half, just took everything that Ergashev had to offer. Then that like third round kicked in and Matias started throwing back. And once he started throwing back, you could tell Ergashev was like, holy shit, like, I'm not used to this. Like, Ergashev, <laughs> for all his knockouts, Ergashev had not fought anybody. Like, his resume was paper thin when it comes to elite-level competition. Matias has not fought a ton of world beaters either, but his resume was a little bit better. And you get to that point, what was it, the end of the fifth round, I think, is when it ended? At the end of the fifth round, like, I don't know what Ergashev officially said was the reason, but that that was a pretty glaring example of a fighter screaming no mas. <laughs> like, wanted nothing more to do with the pounding that Subriel Matias had delivered on him for about three rounds uh, towards the end of that fight. So, Matias is a belt at 140. He is obviously entertaining. Uh, is he the best at 140 right now? Because Junior Walterweight's now one of the best divisions in boxing. At Teofimo Lopez, who has a world title, you're going to see Regis Progre go up against Devin Haney for another version of that world title. But where do you put Matias on this list? Uh, well, he's not the best. You know, I know that, uh, you know, there's a particular person who's in your Twitter DMs who has felt that way for quite some time. Uh, and, you know, maybe they're they're starting to get to you a little bit. They're starting to break you down like Matias does to, to his opponents. Um, I will say that, like, I, I don't think it would be fair to rate him as the best fighter in the division. But I also don't count him out against any of those fighters above him. And... I think that there are questions about a lot of those fighters that are ranked above him. You know, the the Josh Taylors, even Teofimo Lopez, uh, you know, Regis Progre. There's reasons to have questions about them. And there's reasons to have questions about Matias, too, because his level of opposition isn't as high as those other names that I just mentioned. But Matias seems to be on an upswing. And some of those names that I just mentioned, they're coming off performances where... Or performances even, uh, you know, most recently or in the in recent history where you have some questions and that becomes tempting, you know, in, in your mind, you, you start to think, well, you know, would Matias start to run over these guys? I, I don't know whether he would or he wouldn't, but he's a very unpleasant night for anyone that he runs up against and his punch output um, and in talking to the people that he trains with, the way that he trains at, at altitude this is a man with a different level of cardio and a different level of fitness, and he has the capacity to throw a number of punches that can overwhelm anyone in that division. And so I, I'm looking forward to seeing him take those challenges, and I'm not entirely convinced that he would be out of his Look, depth he does against have any of them. a loss on his resume. He did lose a decision to Petros Anadian, or avenge that loss later on, so you give him credit for that. So yeah. it's not like he's unbeatable, uh, but he does seem like a guy that's just kind of getting better. Like, he's improving every single fight. And when you have that kind of chin, and he took some shots from from Urkashev, when you have that type of chin and that type of motor and that type of power, you're going to be a handful for a lot of people. Him, the king of 140, you're right, I do have a guy in my Twitter DMs who constantly sends me paragraphs about uh, Subriel Matias, like just constantly, even before this last fight. Like, it was this, oh, this is the fight that Subriel Matias is going to be coronated as the king of 140. All right, well, we'll slow our roll there. But that was an impressive win. Facing another power puncher in a world title defense, he got the job done. He made a good fighter absolutely quit. Uh, I don't know where his kind of king-making fight's going to come. You know, it's almost like he's going to be operating in a different bracket for a while, right? Like, you know, Haney, Progre, when that happens, Progre's made some noise about fighting him. Maybe he does. Uh, I don't think Haney would go near him because Haney 
you know, doesn't care about a unification. Haney cares about money. Haney's already been the undisputed champion in one weight class. Haney wants money fights. And right now, Matias is not a money fight. Teofimo Lopez, I have no idea what's going to happen with Teofimo in, in the months to come. Like, every time I, I go on YouTube, like, there's a new video of somebody throwing a camera phone at Teofimo's face and him, like, saying something that pretty clearly indicates he's not going to be boxing anytime soon. I know Top Rank wants him back in February. We'll see. We'll see what happens there. I mean, Teofimo seems to place a premium on his value, and if he doesn't get it, it doesn't sound like a guy that's going to fight. So Subriel Matias might be kind of just hanging off to the side. Like, there's there's something happening right now at 140 with what Golden Boy is doing. You've got on the undercard of Ryan Garcia and, uh, and uh, Oscar Duarte the interim fight between O'Hara Davies and Ismael Barroso. That'll be for the interim 140-pound title while Raleigh Romero figures out uh, when he can fight again or if he can fight again. Um, it, it sure sounds like Golden Boy is going to try to direct Ryan Garcia that way, like put him in either with Roley Romero in the spring of next year or the first quarter of next year, or perhaps if the WBA elevates the winner of Davies versus Barroso, that's the fight for Ryan Garcia. And then maybe you're talking in the summer, the winner of Haney Progre versus Ryan Garcia. So I think Matias is really good. I just think it's going to be a while before we see him in kind of a marquee fight because I don't think any of these top guys at 140 are going to be running to fight it because he does present a lot more risk right now than reward, even with the title around his waist. Yeah, and it's it's a shame for Matias because fighters who fight the way that he does, they tend to it's have true. relatively short shelf lives because even, you know, as he's waiting and fighting whoever, making these title defenses while he waits for those big names, it, it's taking a toll on his body, you know, both in training camp and inside the ring with the, with the shots that he takes and it may be that by the time he gets those fights that it, it, we've we've seen the best of Matias uh, by the time that ever happens. But in the interim, I think that he can establish himself as kind of the, the premier action fighter of the day. You know, I think that there are fights out there at 140, you know, for, for the real sickos against, you know, names like you Steve Plaggett. You say Plaggett real sickos, like you're talking about yourself. Lunacy, like, you know? just, like you can, okay. Yeah. Yeah. I'm talking about me. I'm talking about me. For me, make Matias and Claggett. That, that's what I want to see. You are the only one. You, that, that's like, you're like the guy that's gonna that's calling out for like Canelo Williams Skull, right? William, William Skull being Canelo's IBF mandatory. Like, Absolutely. That's, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's who you are right now, <laughs> calling for Matias Clag. It's me and like five hundred. Me and like five hundred. But it's, but it's, are, it's kind uh, of the same thing with Jamal Charlo. Like if you're Matias. You, if you can't get that marquee fight in the first half of 2024, you've got to be active in that first half. You've got to find a way to fight twice, right? Like You've got to keep building that name up so as you start racking up these knockouts, eventually someone's going to have to turn to you and say, we want to put that guy on. Now, I don't know what his contract situation is. I know Matchroom was trying to sign in at one point, thought they were going to, but he could easily find himself on the Matchroom side of the street, which would make things a lot easier to get one of those, those big fights. But I think activity has got to be the key. Maybe that is a reason to sign with Matchroom. Matchroom's got the dates both in the U.S. and the U.K. He could very easily get two fights in the first half of 2024, but that to me is going to be what to watch for with Matias. He is a fun fighter, a talented fighter, a powerful fighter, but he's got to find a way to stay active. Um, let's talk about Katie Taylor. That had against Chantel Cameron. That's one of those events, Corey, I wish I was at because that seemed like a lot of fun. 
Like, first of all, it was a great fight. Katie Taylor, Chantel Cameron, too. Uh, just a rock'em, sock'em robot type of fight over in Dublin, Ireland. Katie Taylor winds up squeezing out a uh, split decision, majority decision win, right? Is that what they call it? Two, uh, two Majority decision win uh, against uh, Chantel Cameron. Uh, you know, this was like Katie Taylor digging deep one more time. You know, she came into this fight as the underdog. She made good adjustments. It was a close fight. It was a competitive fight. We can quibble about was it or was not a knockdown in the first round. Did Taylor do too much holding? But the reality is she dug deep and she got it done. Uh, I would still argue that the Serrano win was Katie Taylor's signature performance only because you kind of had that in-ring moment, right? The fifth round when Katie was just on Dream Street, when Amanda Serrano was administering the kind of beating you rarely see in women's boxing. We didn't see that in this one, but this win was every bit as important as that one. If Katie Taylor had lost this fight, yeah, she could probably go back to 135, keep her career going. But I don't know. It, it would have been different. That's for sure. Uh, where, do, where do you put this among the Katie Taylor performances, and what did you think of the fight? Man, I mean, I might even say that this was a better performance than the Serrano fight, even if it wasn't you know, quite as... It, maybe if it wasn't quite there in terms of the moment... You know, because you know, Taylor Serrano is really, really special at MSG. That's the best crowd that I've I've ever been in. Uh, and I would have loved to be there for Taylor Cameron, too, as well. And not even calling it. I wish that I were just somewhere near the ring with one of those Conor McGregor uh, non-alcoholic beers that were the, the main sponsor of this event, you know, and <laughs> just enjoying it because that atmosphere was nuts as well. Um, yeah, I, I think that this one might have been a little bit better. I, I think that maybe because she didn't, face that kind of adversity. There wasn't that low point in the fight. Um, and also, you know, fighting above maybe where she's fully comfortable. And it also, for me, was special because it looked like Katie's body was breaking down over the last couple of fights. I know that you had been in camp with her and, you know, I had talked to Katie about kind of the knee troubles and and I think she had some foot issues and ankle issues. Well, just she's the, been, the, the just to put that in perspective, when you see really, Katie in recent fights, standing in yeah. a corner between rounds, not sitting on the stool. That's because of leg issues, cramp issues. Like if she, she in the past, if she had sat down, yeah. it would have made her legs cramp up. And if you're Katie Taylor and you rely on a lot of bounce, that could have been a big problem. Yeah. And, and to see that bounce return in this fight, um, I mean, was phenomenal, but also it says a lot about how much Taylor potentially has left. I think, the difference, as you put it, you know, she could have lost this fight and gone back to 135, but winning this fight or not was the difference between this being the Katie Taylor retirement tour or how much can Katie Taylor enhance her legacy now? Because now, you know, that version of Katie Taylor, um, you, know, you, you pick her over a whole bunch of different names and maybe you start thinking about going up to 147 to pick up a belt there too. I mean, the, the options are all over the place. Yeah, you know? I don't know about that. I, I mean, 147, I don't know what... <laughs> You gonna go fight McCaskill again at one forty-seven, right? Sandy Ryan, or no? I don't. That that may. I, I think Katie has reached her weight maximum. Uh, she was, and look, Chantel Cameron had fought lower than one forty before, so it's not like yeah, Chantel Goliath. Yeah. Is, yeah, she wasn't a Goliath, but Katie is a hundred and thirty-five pounder. Yeah, she could fight McCaskill because McCaskill. She already beat McCaskill right. when McCaskill's at one thirty-five. Right. I, I just don't know what the you know Katie right now is a money weight fighter and. You know, whether that's at 135 or 140, that's where she's most likely going to stay, which leads me to the next question. Like, Katie, 
immediately after the fight said she wanted to do a trilogy fight with Chantel Cameron in Croke Park in Ireland. Now, Croke Park is a massive stadium in Ireland. 80,000 fans in Dublin can watch that fight. It was where the the matchroom team originally wanted to bring the first fight against Cameron, which was originally supposed to be the rematch with Amanda Serrano. Things didn't work out. Government issues, safety issues, a lot of things were going on with Croke Park at that time. Uh, it sure sounds like Matchroom's going to push pretty hard to get Katie's next fight in Croke Park. Now, Katie said Chantel Cameron, but Eddie Hearn afterwards was like, well, still got Amanda Serrano out there. Let's not forget how good that fight was at Madison Square Garden. Corey, I'm of the opinion that this should be a no-brainer. Like, Chantel Cameron was was an excellent fight, and Chantel Cameron is an excellent fighter. But she's like, uh, I don't want to call her an opponent because that's that's disrespectful to Chantel Cameron. But she's she was brought in because of her titles. Katie wanted to fight uh, the undisputed champion at 140. She wanted a big fight and a marquee event. Amanda Serrano, it doesn't matter what belt she has. Amanda Serrano is a star in her own right. Uh, you know that night at MSG, there were a lot of Irish fans there. But the other half were Puerto Rican fans that were there supporting Amanda Serrano. So she brings her own fan base to the table, her own visibility. You know, pound for pound lists, you know, Katie, Amanda, Clarissa Shields, pick your poison. All three of them, those women at the top. I, I just think it's a much smarter play to get that Serrano fight over the line. I don't know why it kind of fell off the radar, you know, in recent months. Obviously, Katie wanted to avenge her loss to, to Chantel Cameron. But now is the time to revisit that. I don't know what Amanda's plans are early in 2024, but they got to figure that out because it's Serrano Taylor to me is a much bigger fight than Taylor Cameron three. I, I, I just don't, I think it's almost apples and oranges at this point. Yeah. I mean, Serrano is the bigger fight. Serrano is the bigger star. Serrano will also bring, you know, you hate to insert, you know, Jake Paul in, in every conversation about women's boxing here, but he will bring something to the table in terms of the promotion of that fight as well. And, and that will be an element it creates a, a bigger event. But, I mean, I'm happy with either of these fights happening next. I mean, these are, I mean, at least according to Ring Magazine, Serrano and Cameron are two of the four best pound-for-pound -pound women in the sport right now. And Taylor has wins over both of them. Like She is uh, an extraordinarily accomplished athlete, you know, a, a once-in-a-generation trailblazer for women's boxing. And I, I genuinely think she does want a rematch with both of these women. I, I think that she means it when she feels like she owes a rematch to Chantel Cameron, you know, kind of for saving that event the first time, you know, for giving her the rematch the, the second time. Um, and that's one of the things that's very unique and, and very beautiful about Katie and how she's approached the sport. I think that she really does see herself as kind of a, a servant to the, to the industry of women's boxing and to the sport of boxing. So I believe her when she, sh when she says she wants that rematch, um, but I'm happy with either outcome. Um, you know, one might be marginally bigger than the other, but I think that Katie on her own is going to be able to to damn near fill Croke Park, uh, regardless of who's across the ring from her. Yeah, I, I think you're just running out of clock here on the Serrano fight. Uh, both these women are in their mid, you know, soon to be late 30s. Uh, you want that fight to take place while it's viable. Um, now it feels like the time for that to happen. I mean, does Amanda Serrano like, look, it, it was nice that she got those three minute rounds. Great. You know, that was a, a landmark moment for women's boxing. I personally think a fight against Amanda and Sky Nicholson is interesting. You know, Sky's built a nice little profile over the UK. I think that's a, a, a reasonably competitive fight or at least a natural fight for Amanda Serrano. But this is the big one, right? Like Amanda, like 
I know there's been some talk about Amanda moving up to fight Alicia Baumgart. I think Baumgart has got to figure her own stuff out first and, and get past uh, these, these these drug allegations that are out there. Uh, I think you got to find a way to make that fight. That fight right now with Katie coming off a win, with Amanda doing what she's doing, that fight is massive once again. I think you've got to find a way to to ultimately make that fight happen, hopefully in Croke Park in uh in 2024. All right, let's talk about the fight we've got this weekend. You got Ryan Garcia back. First fight back since his loss to Javante Davis. First fight as, you know, he's fought at 140 before, but this is a true junior welterweight fight. He's now campaigning at 140 pounds. He's facing Oscar Duarte, who is a 135-pounder on 11-fight winning streak. Uh, all 11 of those fights have come by knockout. I- I've heard some people say, Corey, that they are... You know, almost stunned that Ryan Garcia took this fight against Oscar Duarte. They expected a much easier fight for Garcia coming back from, from the Gervonta fight. What do you think? Is this, is this fight as dangerous as some have suggested, or are we giving Oscar Duarte too much credit? I think this is good matchmaking, and I think that Ryan Garcia is really benefiting from this narrative that it is a tougher matchup than it should be, um, you know, from the the conspiracy that Golden Boy is is putting Duarte in there to, to beat him, that they want to get Garcia beat. Like, all of this, if the fight plays out the way I think it's going to play out, is just going to benefit Garcia. I think that the pendulum has kind of swung too far in the other direction, whereas early in Garcia's career and even up to the Gervonta Davis fight, there was always the... Uh, there was the allegation that he was matched too soft, like, oh, he hasn't fought anyone yet, you know, because you know his popularity outpaced his achievements, which is no fault of his own. That's good marketing. I mean, right, Garcia is popular for things other than being a boxer and outside of boxing. That's just the way that it was. But the reality is, I think that Garcia's probably his fifth best win is better than Duarte's best win. And Duarte is a good fighter but he's not nearly as accomplished as Garcia is. And I also think that the style matchup is excellent for Ryan. I think that when Garcia has struggled, it's been kind of in those between periods between, you know, as he shifted with trainers, I don't think that the, uh, the goose and partnership was, was ultimately ideal. And Garcia also has a little bit of trouble and get a little bit over anxious as we saw against Tank Davis. Although that's obviously a, a, a special beast that he was in there with on that night. When Garcia has to pursue someone, he can get a little bit sloppy. That's not going to happen in this fight. I mean, Duarte is the kind of opponent that Garcia feasts upon, which is someone that's going to come at him and wants to trade left hooks. And when you trade left hooks with Ryan Garcia, it's a very, very dangerous proposition. So I think that optically, this is a great looking matchup for Garcia, but I think the reality of it is just very good matchmaking. I, I I see a Garcia knockout in this fight, and because of the way that we're talking about this, it'll benefit him greatly on the back end. Like, oh, Garcia took this dangerous test coming off of uh, of Tank Davis, and you know, is it more dangerous than he had to take? Yes, but I don't think that this is uh, as big of a threat to Garcia as maybe people are thinking. Yeah, I think two things can be true. One, I think this is a more dangerous comeback fight than maybe we could have seen. Now, I think the runner-up mm-hmm. for this fight was Pedro Campa, who was most recently the comeback fight for Teofimo Lopez. That make that that is a comeback fight. You know, Pedro Campa is a guy that's been in with some good fighters, doesn't have a lot of quality wins, and doesn't have 
fight-changing power. That's the kind of guy you want to put your top fighter in with when they're trying to kind of begin the rebuilding process. But I do agree with you. Um, <laughs> I, Oscar Duarte is a really fun fighter, but he's a guy that makes a lot of mistakes. And I, I know that because I've called a lot of his fights in the last few years. He comes in a little bit reckless. He likes to kind of go to war with you. And it's one thing to try to go to war with like Alex Martin and D'Angelo Keys. It's another thing to do it with Ryan Garcia. And because of that, it, it just seems like he is almost a perfect fit to get hit with a left hook. Like one, and maybe won't go down the way that Romero Duno went down or Francisco Fonseca went down, but Ryan's still going to have a lot of power with that left hook. And the hardest, most dangerous punches out there are the ones you don't see. And I have a feeling that at some point we're going to see Duarte walk into a, a big fight. That's why I never really believed the whole narrative about like, you know, Golden Boy trying to get Ryan beat. No, I think Golden Boy's trying to make Ryan look good here. And and yeah, there's some risk to it. But if he goes out and stops Duarte in like the fourth round, like puts him down with a big shot that winds up getting viewed 10 million times on social media, then Ryan can make the argument that like, I'm still the man out there. Like, I'm the guy that did over a million pay-per-view buys with Tank Davis. I'm the guy that's selling tickets. I'm the guy that's doing ratings. I'm the guy that's getting these big-time knockouts. All you guys with titles, you're coming to me. Like, I, I think that enhances Ryan Garcia's argument. That's why I think this is the right opponent. It is a dangerous opponent uh, because, look, here's the facts. Ryan's coming off a loss, his first loss, a knockout loss. Uh, he's working with a new trainer, so there's going to be an adjustment period there. Uh, so, I don't want to diminish the danger, but while I acknowledge the danger, I do think this is a opponent that Ryan could look really, really good against if if he's patient and does things the right way. I mean, I, I'm I'm very curious to see what the Derek James imprint is going to be. Like I said, I went down to Dallas. We're going to hear from Ryan Garcia coming up in just a couple of minutes. I went down there, and look, Ryan is look he's living in a nice place, but it's not some luxury pad that he's living in. Um, he doesn't really do anything, just kind of hangs out there, plays video games and, you know, hangs with his family, his his immediate family and, and others. Uh, and then goes to the gym. And so I, I think he's in the right headspace now to kind of begin this next chapter. One of the questions I, I have about Ryan is that, look, it's one thing to spend four months in Texas uh, working out for a comeback fight. Are you ready to spend four years down there? Like, are you prepared to give up that LA lifestyle and all the things that came with it to just focus on boxing. Right now, he is. And I think that's going to yield some positive results. Down the line, we'll see what happens. But I, I am, and I'm pretty enthusiastic about how Ryan Garcia is going to look when he comes back. Yeah, and, and I like the Derek James partnership too. You know, it, when you look at the, the fighters that uh, Derek James primarily works with and has molded over the years, there, there's one kind of commonality that, that you often see, which is that they are responsible power punchers. And I think that that is precisely what Garcia needs to be, uh, you know, chiseled into, you know, we've seen flashes of that. Um, you know, like I, I thought like a, a really good version of Ryan Garcia was in that Luke Campbell fight, you know, aside from that knockdown, you know, just, you know, he was jabbing a little bit more um, and he walked his opponent into the shot that he wanted. And he's going to have that opportunity against Duarte he'll also have the opportunity to get a little bit reckless. So I think that this is, not only is it a perfect opponent because I think he's going to win, but I think that it's a style that if Garcia hasn't made both the technical and mental adjustments, 
could put him in those dangerous scenarios where we'd see whether he's made those adjustments or not. But I, again, I think that this is this is just good matchmaking, and I think that the the optics of this being a dangerous opponent that was also important for Garcia marketing wise too, because he spent the entirety of the buildup to the Tank Davis fight talking about how hey fighters these days don't want to take risks. I'm willing to take them. I'm willing to take losses. I don't care. So it was important that the the narrative around this fight be exactly what it is. So I think that. Um, I mean, if this is Golden Boy trying to get Garcia beat, I mean, they've done a masterful job of doing the opposite in terms of what they wanted to do, which is, uh, you know, just make Garcia look good in terms of who he's chosen. And again, if this fight goes the way I think it will, uh, making him look good in the ring, too. Look, if they were trying to get Ryan Garcia beat, what the hell are they doing signing O'Hara Davies? Like, Golden Boy doesn't do British shows. Like, why would they want O'Hara Davies on their roster? Oh, yeah, I know why. Because O'Hara Davies... You know, in a couple of days, might wind up being the 140-pound champion. And Ryan's made it clear he wants to fight for a world title at some point in 2024. There you have it. You might have a guy on your roster who is good but not great that you can put up against Ryan Garcia. I never bought the idea that Golden Boy was trying to to get him beat to somehow manipulate his contract or lower his you know his pay. Like that doesn't make any sense. Not with a fighter like Ryan Garcia, who is just, he transcends that. Like, he's just bigger than that. You know, he's he's a moneymaker for that company. I, I don't know why they would ever want to see him uh, go down in a fight like that. All right, Corey will be back on Friday in Houston. Check it out. Where is that fight anyway? I, I'm going, but I don't, what's the venue for that fight? Do we know? It's, it's at the Owl's Nest, a brand Owl's new Nest. facility. Oh. Yeah, a brand new facility in Houston, a 1500 seat, very intimate venue, no bad seats in the house. Uh, you're going to enjoy All it. All right, if you're down there, if you're down in Houston yeah. for the Ryan Garcia fight, come a day early, get down to the Owl's Nest. I'll be there. Corey will be there. The Sam Ketkovsky Spectacular, we're calling it, down in yes. the, the Owl's Nest. Saturday, I'll be back on zone for Ryan Garcia against Oscar Duarte. Part of the subscription, no pay-per-view for that fight so that's great for fight fans out there as well Corey, good stuff man and uh good luck this weekend we'll see you in a day and when we come back my conversation with ryan garcia ebay motors is here for the ride now i'm supposed to talk here about what i remember and what i loved about my first car and that's easy for me to do because i still have my first car and as long as it keeps running and so far so good i intend to have that car probably until the day I die. Uh, that's how much I love that car. It is like a child to me. Now, it does require some upkeep, and that's why I'm grateful for a place like eBay Motors. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED lights, roof racks, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. There are some things that are too good to keep a secret. Like how your Amex Platinum card helps you have the perfect trip. I'd like to check into the Centurion Lounge. Or how it seems like you always get those hard-to-snag tables. Ooh, yum. And how you get the most out of select can't-miss events. With access to the Centurion Lounge, Resi Priority Notify, and Amex card member benefits at select events, you'll have to share. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Attention all wrestling aficionados. Wrestling with Freddie makes its triumphant return for an electrifying fourth season. 
This is Freddie Prince Jr., and I am beyond thrilled to announce that our wrestling extravaganza is back, and joining me once again is the one and only Jeff Dye. Get ready as we highlight the most jaw-dropping matches, dissect the fiercest feuds, and uncover the latest twists and turns in the world of pro wrestling. We're dusting off our legendary side quests and unleashing a barrage of brand new segments that will keep you guys on the edge of your seat like our talks on unsanctioned Thursdays. Freddie, you know we gotta give the people what they want. This season, we have an all-star lineup of special guests who are gonna be gracing our podcast, bringing with them their own unique insights, experiences, and all of that in the world of pro wrestling and beyond. Whether you're a seasoned wrestling veteran or a fresh-faced newcomer, we promise an experience like no other. So buckle up, wrestling fans. Listen to Wrestling with Freddie as part of the My Cultura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, so recently I flew down to Dallas, Texas, where Ryan Garcia has decamped in preparation for this fight. His first training camp with Dark James, the notable trainer who works with Anthony Joshua, Errol Spence, Jamel Charlo, among others. And I had a chance to spend some some quality time, some good amount of time with Ryan Garcia. We got into a lot of topics during our conversation. We talked about the loss to Gervonta Davis, why he felt he needed to leave LA, which he described to me as a toxic situation, uh, what he's gained from being in Dallas, and, and kind of what he hopes to accomplish as it begins this new chapter of his career. I thought it was a really good conversation with Ryan. Looking forward to everyone uh, out there hearing it. So with no further ado, here's my conversation with Ryan Garcia. Back in the ring, back on the zone, new trainer, new weight class, new home here in Dallas, Texas. How are you feeling about everything? I'm feeling great. It's been a great change for me. I definitely feel more focused, more committed to the sport, more dedicated. Um, it, it feels like just like the thing I needed. Why did you need it? I think um, those year and a half layoffs and, and just all the time that I would take outside the sport really uh, didn't help my focus in boxing. And I kind of lost like that, 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 that supreme focus you need in boxing and that dedication and that commitment to the sport. And um, you know, this right here really showed me what it's like to go 100% again um, in, in, in focus and focus for boxing. So this is exactly what I need to you know. In Dallas, it, it, it's perfect. Mm -hmm. You keep your focus and it's all training. So you didn't make a subtle change. You made radical changes. You moved, picked up your life and moved to Texas, made a change with your head coach. When did you know that you needed to make such a radical change? Well, just the environment I was in. If you're in a toxic environment, it's just not gonna work out for you. Mm -hmm. So it was just in my spirit to, to, to you know, change things all the way. Mm -hmm. And I just let God guide me and he guided me to Dallas, Texas and uh, with a great trainer like Derek. And I could see my difference, you know, my focus and, and my commitment mm -hmm. and just things that I'm like, wow, I, you know, I should have been doing this a minute ago. <laughs> but, uh, but it is what it is. Sometimes you need to lose and sometimes you need to hit rock bottom to, to realize the changes you need to make. And I think that's what's gonna make me great and, and, and show people who I am is just how I bounce back. It's not easy to lose, but you know, great champions come back. Toxic is a powerful word you use there. Why was it a toxic environment for you? It was toxic because um, LA, you know, people wanna be around famous people. Um, there's a lot of distractions. Um, even the gym I was at, you know, it's kind of a celebrity gym in a way. And uh, things weren't locked in like a training camp. Mm -hmm. and, um, 
in hindsight, looking back, it was like, wow, like being here and, and just being in, in just that full focus mode, there's a huge difference. Um, I just, my, my dedication just wasn't there. It wasn't there. And, and when you take those long layoffs, you, you don't realize it because you think, you know, you're just going with emotions like, okay, like I, oh, I'll get ready for a fight. But it's not just a fight. It, it's it's everything. You need to put everything into boxing. You can't just you know think you're gonna pick up some gloves and, and, and perform well. It don't work like that. You need, you need to grind. So what's changed over the last eight months that you've been mostly here in Texas? Just my commitment and my and my dedication, and my focus towards the sport in itself, and, and being committed to Derek's training and 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 what he wants me to do. And giving my whole effort into boxing like like I was in 2020 and, and the years that I was thriving, you know, before all the long layoffs. So I feel like that focus is back. Mm-hmm. A focus I haven't felt for a while. And I'm like, okay, this feels nice. Like finally, like I'm uh, I know what I'm doing in the ring again, thank God. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? It feels like that when mm-hmm. especially when you put everything into it. Um I've always had the talent, but when you don't have the focus, it, it doesn't really matter. You spent years pushing for and calling for that Gervonta Davis fight. I know it's not a simple question to answer, but what went wrong for you in that fight? I think uh, a ton of things went wrong for me in that fight. Uh, I think the first one was uh, the layoff of of the year and and some change. Um, I really wanted to fight him in October after Fortuna when I felt like my momentum was there. Um, A lot of things killed that for me. Um, And then my my eagerness to fight him so bad uh, messed me up because then I didn't take the tune-up with Marcito. Mm-hmm. I didn't want to ruin the chances to fight him, um, and the and, and and all the stipulations. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't want to go back to that. You know, like I said, I signed it, so it doesn't matter. But those really do have an effect on you. <laughs> I thought I could get around it, but uh, no, fighting in that 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 state is not fun. You don't have the energy, and you can't do what you want to do. So. A lot of things went wrong, but uh, again, we're now focused on just becoming the champion. That big fight was great. Uh, it went, it did really well, but now I want to become a champion, establish myself as a champion at 140, and build from there, and hopefully, grind that back because I know I'm capable of beating them uh, in in different circumstances. You know, you've said that a lot. Becoming a champion. Yeah. You've emphasized that a lot over the last couple of months. That's not something I heard you emphasize before. Yeah. Before it was. You want big fights, but maybe for different reasons. Yep. What What has changed that makes you want that championship now so bad? Well, I just had a plan in my head since I was uh, coming into the you know professional rankings. I, I wanted everybody to know my name at first. I wanted people to see my talent, see what I could do, um, build a big fights, and, and you know have spectacular events. And now, you know. I, I've been boxing since I was seven years old. I feel like I deserve to give myself a chance to become a champion. I've always, you know, was I was the best in, in the amateurs. I won a lot of national titles and I feel like I'm seeking and, and I'm longing for a championship title now. Mm-hmm. Like I want to be able to see me like, okay, he's not only a superstar, but he's also a champion. Mm-hmm. He also, you know, can be the best. Like, okay, he's not just a kid that knows how to market himself. He's actually a person that um, took the sports series and became a champion and, and did it all really. So I want to show people I could do it all. Like if you want me to go full focus mode, you're, you're about to see something different. <laughs> when, um, when the, in the days after your first loss, and you hadn't lost since the amateur days, so it would have been a long time 
since you felt defeat. What did that feel like? I mean, how did you handle that? It's disappointing because I didn't feel anything. Mm-hmm. I didn't feel not one moment of sadness. And people say it's because the money, but it wasn't because of the money. It's because that I stopped caring about just just winning in general. Like my com- com- competition edge was just not there. It was like, okay, I did the big fight, great. You know, I don't, I don't know what was missing. It was just me kind of fed up with all the shit I had to go through and just me not giving like a rat's ass about anything mm-hmm. anymore because me having to cut that weight, it was actually really hard for me. Mm-hmm. And, and me not being able to gain the weight, like I was already pissed off and I just, I was mad because nobody seemed to actually like really take that serious, like part of my team. Like, nah, this is hurting me to make this weight. They were just watching me like, you got it, you got it. Like, I didn't have it, mm-hmm. you know? So when I lost, it was just like, I don't give a shit. Like, I, already, I came in with a separated rib and all this stuff. And, you know, I was just like, I don't, I don't care. But looking at it, it's like, bro, why didn't I care? That's crazy. Mm-hmm. Like, I should care. And then a little later on, I mean, like a month later, it was like, oh, shit. Like, I did lose. Mm-hmm. That, that happened. And it kind of hit me. And I was like, I'm never going to lose again. Mm-hmm. I don't want to lose again. Like I'm gonna, I'm gonna erase the things I was doing, you know. I was not not being a professional. I wasn't being a f- professional. But um, like I said, sometimes you gotta lose to realize shit, I gotta make a change here. Like it's not just it's not fun and games. Like this is a real sport. You could get hurt. You said there you sh- need to sharpen that edge to be more sharpen that competitive edge. How has Derek influenced that? Just always, man, speaking truth to me and, and being like type of a like a mentor and, and, and really talking to me like, okay, Ryan, like remember you earned this. Like you're gonna earn this. Every time you're gonna get in the ring, you you know, you're there because you earned it. Mm-hmm. And just speaking things like that to me and like he's always just giving me, you know, a life advice and just boxing advice. And I'm like, okay. He's like always correcting me on my technique and, and things that I need to work on. So, you know, Derek uh just a a really great trainer. He's been, he's you know, been there for me. When you chose Derek James, on one hand, it made a lot of sense. He's an incredible trainer. He's had a lot of success, a lot of high-profile guys. One of the things I thought, though, was that one of the reasons you left Eddie Reynoso was because you wanted more hands-on attention. You wanted to be the guy, in a way, to whatever trainer you were working with. Derek's got a lot of guys, a lot of high-level guys. You'd be one of those guys. Uh, why was it different? Why is it different in this situation as opposed to what you didn't like in the Canelo camp. Well, Derek has um he scheduled himself. Uh, you know, he he's the type of dude that he plans and schedules, so he he gives guys the full time. Mm-hmm. You know, Derek's training me every single time, every day, at the exact same time from a certain time to to when we end. Mm-hmm. So he has his stuff together. He's organized. So it's not really I don't I haven't experienced any like oh I got to train this guy first or mm-hmm. whatnot and. You know, looking back on it, I don't, I don't know if I left Eddie because of, you know, I, oh, I got to be only one training. It, it wasn't really like, it wasn't for that reason. Mm-hmm. It was other things, you know. And, you know, now I feel like we got a better relationship, too. Mm-hmm. I want to make that clear. Like, mm-hmm. me and Eddie and, and, and Canel, we we're cool. Everything's good. Um, I was just, again, mad about some certain thing happening in the gym. That was it. Um, but, you know... Now, now it's it's good. You know, Derek has everything organized, ready to train at this certain time, and boom, it's clear. It's done. Did you give any thought 
any point to going back to to Eddie then you know the prodigal son returns to, <laughs> yeah. to the gym yeah no there was discussions there was discussions of me going back with Eddie but um you know just things didn't work out mm -hmm. and uh and you know I felt like Derek was the better fit for mm -hmm. me on, on certain things uh but again like Eddie it was it was a thought you know he talked about the fight even about you know tank and what could have been done. So it, we, like I said, we're on good terms mm -hmm. and, and things are still good with us. What's it like to have so many guys that are high level in that gym? Is that a source of motivation? Does that push you even further than you've been pushed before? Having guys like Errol Spence Jr., Jermel Charlo, Anthony Joshua, Frank Martin in that gym on a regular basis? I think it's just fun seeing them there, <laughs> to be honest. Like, it's cool. It's like, oh, shit, you're here. Mm. Uh, but I think all that comes within yourself. Mm -hmm. You know, you could have a million people there. You could have Canelo there. You could have you have the world, Cristiano Ronaldo, that don't matter. If, if, if it's not in you to want to push, you know, if you can't push without them being there, you ain't going to push them when they're there. Mm -hmm. So for me, uh, it's just, it's cool. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's great to see, see guys that are, you know, dedicated mm -hmm. but um for me it's all within me if i'm not i'm not there i'm not there mm -hmm. is this do you consider this your life now because i mean you've been doing it for about six months Derek james ain't moving to la like could yeah. you see yourself doing it <laughs> for six years i mean do you see this as your I, life? I see myself giving everything i have to boxing for as long as i can and then and then hitting them with the deuces but i but i'm committed to like taking this as far as I can mm -hmm. you know, and becoming a champion of how many times that's going to be and um, having great fights with great fighters um, and seeing where that's going to go. But um, I don't know how long that's going to last, mm -hmm. but I'm here to do it. Mm -hmm. And I'm not going to let my life waste by without reaching my full potential. Mm -hmm. I'm still young and I can do it. So, Do you think about the end though? It sounds like it crosses your mind about how long you want to do it and whether you want to do other things. Uh, as of right now, no. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, I'd be like, damn, bro, I keep want to go through these hard-ass training camps. <laughs> Sometimes, of course, it's hard. These are not. It's not easy to wake up and do the same thing every day and and grind hard and avoid burning out and then having to like get back on the horse and go again. Like the training camps, the hard part. Mm -hmm. The fights is fun, but you know, again, I know this is part of the game and I'm committed. And um, you know, I see myself doing this for as long as I can. Mm. As long as I can, and 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 doing great things in the sport, and then riding off in the sunset, whatever I'm gonna do, I have no clue. <laughs> you yeah. obviously never want to take a loss, yeah. but as you look back at it now, do you feel like you're a better fighter because of at least the experience of going through what you went through with Gervonta? Oh yeah, yeah, definitely. Now, uh, no media day is gonna be able to compare to how big that was, <laughs> and and the electricity and so now i'm more i'm used to i'm gonna be more you know experienced if i have a huge fight like that again mm -hmm. which i will uh and you know I, I gained a lot of experience from it and i don't even care about i lost to be honest I'm, okay i'm gonna come back you know what i mean and i think this is showing a great example to other fighters like i lost but watch what i do now mm -hmm. And they're gonna see how successful I'm gonna be, even off a loss, and it's gonna change the whole dynamic of, of boxing. And I think it did. I think me even getting in there and risking it that early in my career, I think that did inspire other people to finally, you know, buckle up and fight. Mm -hmm. um, I think I did a good thing for the sport, mm -hmm. and 
And I think, you know, if time goes on, they're gonna be like, yeah, that was the moment shit changed. Mm -hmm. You know, that, that was like, I put a stake in what it was before. Mm -hmm. And I think I'm gonna continue to do that. I think I'm gonna keep innovating in the sport and they're gonna be following my lead, mm -hmm. you know? And, and I can see it, you know? Mm -hmm. I was doing social media, now every boxer wants to mm -hmm. do it. And then, you know, now I'm gonna show them the blueprint on how to produce big fights. Mm -hmm. um, I think I'm gonna be leading the way for a while. So Oscar Duarte, I told you this before, I was surprised when you picked him. You know, not to make it out like he's Muhammad Ali, <laughs> but I see a lot of guys coming off a challenging loss, taking much softer touches. This to me is not a soft touch. You could have taken on anybody you wanted. Why did you pick Oscar Duarte? It was between two guys. Um, I trust my coaches, uh, his uh, you know opinion on who I should fight. So I sent him the guys that I could potentially fight and he wanted Oscar Duarte. Mm -hmm. So that was basically what it was. Mm -hmm. Oscar Duarte, um, of course, he's a heavy puncher, but if you've been boxing a long time, you should know how to fight guys that hit hard. Mm -hmm. There's gonna be guys that hit hard, there's gonna be guys that are fast slow, come forward, back up. I can't be, you know what I'm gonna do? I want a world title, but I can't beat, you know, Oscar Dorte, mm -hmm. no disrespect. But if I wanna do that, like, let's, let's run it, you know? Um, I think that the layoff wasn't that long from Tank, so I still feel right there. You know, I'm not discouraged from the loss, so this is not, it's not gonna affect me. Mm -hmm. uh, it's gonna be a tough fight. Uh, don't get me wrong, I gotta be extra cautious, but I think, uh, I, well, actually, I know I'm ready. Mm -hmm. yeah. You know, a lot of people would look at the weight and say, I weighed 136 last time, 140. What's the big deal? Yeah. What is the big deal? What's the difference with you between 136 and 140? I just think that people um, that say that, it's not educated on the sport. You know, mm -hmm. those, those last pounds can, can kill you literally mm -hmm. because you're already killing yourself to get there. Mm -hmm. So um, those extra pounds are just like, it's just a relief for your body. Um, and, and on top of it, you know, Look it, you could have fight with 12 ounce gloves or eight ounce gloves. Oh, it's only four ounces. Now you tell a fighter what's the difference. <laughs> it's just, if you know, you know. I don't, you know, I don't want to explain it. Like, mm -hmm. you know, you know. <laughs> you know, you know, if, you, if you're a wrestler and you cut the weight before, you over late. Mm -hmm. And then on top of it, if you're not able to rehydrate the way you want, mm -hmm. that's even worse. <laughs> like, that's like a huge disadvantage. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't care what nobody says. Like, that's crazy. <laughs> yeah. Does the, you're still weeks away from the fight, but does the training feel different not having to have 135 as the target? Yes, it's a relief. Like I could focus on my skills. I'm not even tripping about my weight. Mm -hmm. Like I'm cool. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, it's been a huge relief and I felt like I was fighting good at 140. Mm -hmm. Like for Tuna, like I felt like my mind was there. I was sharp. Uh, I could take the punches. I mean, I guess for Tuna was like a true 140, but mm -hmm. you know, I felt better. I mean, regardless of mm -hmm. whoever the opponent was, I always felt better. Like that weight class, I was mm -hmm. like sharper and I felt more, you know, conscious. Mm -hmm. um, so I think you're going to see a great performance for me. Does this feel like a new chapter for you? Yeah, yeah. Like if it was like a book, <laughs> it was like chapter this. Yeah. You've got a few chapters already. And yeah, now it, it was like, like a fun chapter in the beginning and then now we're in a new one. Uh, yeah, I think that you're going to see a another rise of mine you know mm -hmm. just another great trajectory like damn ryan's back it's gonna go it's gonna be fire it's gonna be mm -hmm. a fun ride you know spectacular wins mm -hmm. it's just gonna have you know another hurrah mm -hmm. you know what i mean boom we're gonna mm -hmm. we're gonna build it up again mm -hmm. I, I feel it i know it mm -hmm. december is the start of, of a massive month of fights on the zone which includes bam rodriguez sonny edwards jake paul is going to be back 
on the zone. And your good friend Devin Haney, you've got a lot long history with. Yeah. You want titles, you said. Yes. Uh, the winner of Devin Haney Regis Progray will have a title. How much how closely are you watching that fight when it comes to a future opponent for yourself? I'm gonna be watching that real close. Mm-hmm. Um Devin Haney's been on the uh, list of future opponents for a while. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's been doing really good. Uh, Regis, also a great fighter. So I'll be looking at it. Um, I want the world title. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I'll be, you know, I have a little long history with Devin. Uh, it's been boiling up mm-hmm. for a minute. And uh, I think that people want to see that. So uh, I'll be looking forward to it. How many times in the amateurs? We fought six times. Six times. Yeah. Three go? and three. Okay. So yeah, three and three. But, you know, when I fought him, I, I cracked him. When he fought me, you know, mm-hmm. points, you know, little points. <laughs> you know, I, was, I was banging on him, you know, I was hurting him. Now, like, I remember when he got in the ring after you beat Fonseca in Anaheim. Mm-hmm. And that was it, fun. It, it, didn't, it was fun. It just didn't feel like the right time for that fight then. No. You know, you get through December, now, now it's starting to feel pretty right with oh, you guys. It is, it is. Um, I, I, I think, you know, realistically, I think, that I'm gonna have some great performances and, and maybe in two fights, you know, three fights. I, th- I think that we're gonna run a big one. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I need to do my part on on, on exploding the 140 division. Mm-hmm. So I got some work to do. Mm-hmm. You know, he's he's been doing his thing, but I'm gonna you know have those performances again and, and do what I do, mm-hmm. and then we can run it. You know, for a big one. You know, I gotta be smart too. Mm-hmm. I gotta be you know realistic. You know, I'm not gonna just go. To Duarte, right to Devin, it doesn't make sense. You know, mm-hmm. I think I need to establish myself. Like, you know, this guy's for real at 140. Like, mm-hmm. be careful, you know? So that's what I'm gonna do. Mm-hmm. Ryan, welcome back. Thank you. You're the best, sir. <laughs> that's it for this week's episode. My thanks to Corey Erdman and Ryan Garcia for joining the show. As always, subscribe, rate, review this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you download podcasts. And I'll see you next week. Thank you so much. I go sleep. It's Freddie Prinze Jr. and Jeff Dye back in the ring. Wrestling with Freddie makes its triumphant return for an electrifying fourth season. Hey, Jeff, are you ready to rumble our way into an all-new season of Wrestling with Freddie? You better believe I have. I've been practicing my body slams, and I'm jacked. All right, don't go injuring yourself now. We'll be highlighting the best stories and matches of the week in wrestling from AEW, WWE, and have one-on-one talks with the best talents in the world of pro wrestling. Listen to Wrestling with Freddie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. More Than a Movie is back with Season 2. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie. Because John Stamos' picture was already up on the wall. Listen to More Than a Movie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.